I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And this week, my guest is the lovely TV funny man and massive Weller fan, Trevor Neal. As half of comedy duo Trevor and Simon, the Trevor half in case you were wondering, they stormed kids TV for a decade, from going live to live and kicking, making Saturday mornings essential TV viewing whatever your age. He's also a huge fan of The Jam, Style Council, and Weller Solo, so you'll love this one. In fact, he has so many things in common with Paul that he might as well be called Trevor Weller. Trevor Neal, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is an absolute joy. I'm so excited about this conversation because we've been we've been chatting for a few weeks and trying to find a slot and stuff. And your experience of the Jam and the Weller um, fandom is going to be such a t- cool thing to get into. So, so, well, it is fandom. It's total fandom. I have no other proper Weller credentials. I'm a Weller fella as a fan, but not a Weller fella as in a. Uh, any kind of close, you know, contact or musical um, connection or anything, really. I do, I do play in a band now, and I have played, and I have sung. I have become, I've channeled Paul Weller in in the band, and that's great fun, I have to say. Which songs are in the setlist then? Well, it, it, things come and go, um, but we, we've we've always had Tube Station, A Bomb in Wardour Street, Changing Man, sometimes Peacock Suit. We've got the kind of soul covers as well, Midnight Hour, Heat Wave, and there may be others. Uh, oh, they're just such, they're such great fun to play. I yeah. bet. And, and the reaction you get from the audience when you play those ones is presumably pretty cool. Completely, yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, Changing Man gets a good reaction, uh, but Tube Station just forever gets a brilliant reaction. I mean, I came to it very late in life. I was a teenage kind of punk fan who picked up a guitar and started to sort of teach myself guitar. And probably in the city, the album was probably the, the album that really inspired me to want to uh, carry on and learn how to play because those songs, which actually was a really 
difficult album to try and play. As punk goes, you know, people talk about, you know, three chord songs and three chord wonders. Uh, you know, that album is so not that. It's so complex, really. And his guitar, for such a young man, to play that guitar and get that sound, it was just torment for a young teenager who basically had a, a, <laughs> a very cheap kind of guitar and a little kind of crackly amp and uh, couldn't get that kind of jangly Rickenbacker sound, could never get that. I mean, well, even now I struggle to try and get that sound and I've tried lots of different amps and, you know, luckily I, I feel very fortunate I bought myself a, a Rickenbacker as well at one point. I've, got, I've passed it on now. I've still got a, another version, copy version. But um, And I've tried to get that sound through valve amps. I'm going to get a bit technical now, like old sort of 70s Wem amps. Uh, uh, Vox, I've got a Vox AC30. But that's a solid state one, not a valve one. So you get, you can't get that sound right. And, and I've kind of listened and, and, and read interviews where he says, no, I don't use pedals. I just use a bit of reverb and I use this amp and that very hard sound to, <laughs> to, to replicate. And then to get, to get, you know, just to play those songs, then you've got to have a talent, which is beyond me as well, because his, he wasn't just playing three chords. He was playing great stuff. And I don't know how young was he? He was like, 19 yeah it was like nine, yeah i mean when the album came out i think it was 19 this, this, which is nuts isn't it i mean that's that oh, is it's just incredible uh, so yeah so i've sorry, I waffled on now but i did so i came to it late in life i kept playing guitar and, bit, and then there was me and some friends uh who, who were dads at the school gate and we got chatting and um we were all kind of of a certain age and we were all kind of old old punks and and people who liked the jam and the clash and and then later the specials and and two-tone and all that sort of stuff so we said well look let's have a go we found a kind of rehearsal room and we kind of got together just started playing the covers of songs we like you know we weren't we didn't want to just be that kind of pub covers band that just plays anything to please the crowd we just decided we were only going to play the songs we liked so it was a very limited kind of time period between kind of 77 and and 80 one really <laughs> but then we've extended it a bit now we've included some stone roses and we've that was as modern as we get really what a lovely thing yeah it's it? fantastic and play so playing tube station there is a version online people can find somewhere it's the band's called charlie don't surf and we're playing at ramsgate music hall uh, which is a great little indie venue. I feel really sorry for the venues at the moment, the small mm. music venues. They're really struggling. But Ramsgate Music Hall is a great one. And um, so we played there. And, and there is a, yeah, there's a video version of me singing Tube Station without a hat, without any hair, without a wig. Though I kind of don't particularly, uh, I'm not really rocking the Weller look. But, um, <laughs> but I think we do a fair stab at the song. I'll let people judge. We had um, Russell Hastings from the Jam was talking about the impact of that song um, a few episodes back, and yeah, um, I heard that one. Actually. It's um, it's yeah, it's, I mean, it still stands up. It's an incredible song. I saw, um, I'm sure it's Carl Barrett. I'm sure I saw him play it with Weller at the Ron Albert Hall when one gig. Oh, really? One that was. Yeah, which was really exciting because I've been lucky enough to meet him recently, Carl, because uh, I live near Margate and the the, Al- and the Libertines have opened up the Albion Rooms there, uh, which is a recording studio and hotel and stuff. It's, oh, it's cool. a great team there. Carl's been very kind. The team there have given my son some studio time in there. I've, I've spent my whole kind of time trying to push my son as, as, as a Paul Weller because I never made it myself. So I'm encouraging my, my son to do it. I mean, he, he won't thank me for that. 
he's plowing his own field, obviously. But I, I do dream about the idea of going on stage and introducing him like John Weller did. You know, he's, I think that would be a great thing to do. There's, there's no other reason to have kids apart from the fact that you can kind of live, you live your dreams through them. That's the whole point. Dreams of dreams <laughs> yeah. of children. Isn't that what the song's about? I don't know. Yeah. That's the whole point. <laughs> Didn't you want to be a pop star when you were younger? Wasn't that a thing as well? Yeah, or I, you kind I, of got I, into comedy? I mean, who doesn't really? I think a lot of people probably do, you know, dream of being a pop star. And, and I grew up in, well, actually, you know, now, now it's all going to get very dark, but I grew up in the 70s. So it was like glam rock. And, uh, and of course, then, you know, the, your heroes then were, were quite bizarre. I mean, um, there's Slade and Sweet and, and, you know, Gary Glitter, you know, so uh, there was kind of uh, some strange um, heroes there, really. But then there was David Bowie, which my, my brother had all the albums for. And so that was my introduction, really, to sort of proper music. Although I, I think, still think Slade are great. They, they wrote some great songs and they still stand up, I think. And I was a big T-Rex fan. And I think Bolin wrote some great songs, too. So, yes, I kind of wanted to be, uh, yeah, kind of pop star around that time, I suppose. When I listened to all my brother's Bowie albums, I mean, I, that's when music started getting serious for me, really. I started listening to the lyrics and would sit there. And I was very young at the time. But I also wanted to be a stuntman. I wanted to be <laughs> Evil Evil, which was... <laughs> Probably the most, even more ridiculous hope. But, I, I, you know, having watched Evil Knievel jump over like um, 14 buses or whatever it was in Wembley Stadium, fall off, break every bone in his body, and then still carry on and say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to retire. And then he comes back next year and then jumps over the Grand Canyon or whatever else he did next. The thing is, I don't, I don't know that we ever saw any other stunts from him, though. There was just an awful lot of just jumping on the bike. Was that because that was it, wasn't it? Falling off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he was allegedly fueled by a cocktail of drink and drugs and uh, that kind of, you know, just kept him going, really. But again, I don't think he's the most wholesome hero either. I think reading about him and knowing some of his background, I think uh, he's perhaps not the best role model I could have had either at that point. Thank God you stumbled on Paul. And I, I read somewhere. <laughs> I, I read it's a somewhere. Combination, isn't it? Yeah. It's, oh, Christ, absolutely. I mean, that's that's like a lifesaver for you. That <laughs> the seventies were weird. They were weird, but yeah. Thankfully, punk rock happened, and I discovered the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Jam, and then my life changed. Yeah. I read somewhere that you said um, seeing the jam for the first time on top of top of the pops was the single greatest piece of TV ever. I think it's it's true. Although I think I'm going to have to amend that slightly because I have a feeling the first time I saw the jam was actually on the Mark Boland show, Mark which he had his own sort of kids show, which was live music, where he did his his sort of stuff. It was kind of at the real kind of the tail end of glam rock. So I think he was trying to move into other areas and so TV presenting. But he would do his own thing, which was great, really. He was promoting like young acts and new acts and, and new music. So he had some unusual, or unex, not unusual, but unexpected stuff on. And, and the jam were one of them. So I think seeing them do all around the world was the first time I saw them play although like i say i'd heard them on john peel and stuff and it was just fantastic i've seen i watched it again this week actually thinking about this and um and it's a great a bit of and i think they are doing it live whether it went out live i don't know but they're playing it live and and you're just waiting for the final chord and, and rick buckler throws his stick but it drove it flies away his drums oh. flies away. and so you can see paul looking scowl almost and then sort of turn his back and then the, the song kind of slightly fizzles out right. which i'd never realized before but um 
And oh, lovely. Uh, anyway, on the YouTube clip I saw, it goes right to the end. I wouldn't like to have been in the dressing room <laughs> after that one. Yeah, yeah, absolute bollocking. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't take away from it. It was fantastic. I think from that point then, I just thought, yeah, uh, this band is fantastic. Just started, well, listening and buying everything that came out of the jam then, really. So in terms of first live gig, was this the day in Southampton? You had a ticket for yeah, the I, I had to. <laughs> I had to wait a long time. I, li- I grew up in Southampton and, um, and in a way, I, th- I think I kind of think maybe that's why I kind I mean me and a million other you know young jam fans but that whole thing of um, Paul Weller singing about you know I know I come from Woking and you'll say I'm a fraud and him having this sort of slight kind of I don't come from London kind of thing and, and will I be accepted and living in Southampton was, was sort of similar possibly in that you know, you were only about 80 miles from London, but it wasn't London and uh, it was Southampton and it was very different. And we had a slight West Country lilt to our accent. So people called us Cockney farmers and things like this. And, you know, it was kind of, you had a slightly different feel. So I don't know whether that was for that reason. Not all that many bands came to Southampton regularly. But yeah, so the jam didn't get to Southampton until the Setting Suns tour, 1979 or something. And so that by that time, I mean, we were just exploding with excitement because we just couldn't wait to see them live. And I was a full-on, you know, yeah, mod then with, with Parker and Suited and Tide and Jam Shoes and uh, and, and the whole lot. And so, uh, yeah, I, I really, really wanted to go and see them. And then all my mates said, right, the only way we're going to get tickets is if we sleep overnight outside the theatre. It was the, oh, the Gaumont Theatre in Southampton, big old hall of a place. And um, so I said, great, yeah, yeah, that'd be fantastic. You know, so I went back home and I sort of said to my folks, you know, I'm, I'm going to, stay out overnight and uh, they went well no no you're not and I and it was like oh God, yeah. <laughs> um my dad was a policeman and so it, he kind of always saw the, the bad side of everything and kind of said no you're not staying out you're not going to be staying out overnight you know and by that time I was like 16 I guess and was yeah, that the yeah. only, was that the only way to get tickets so you could I mean obviously your internet didn't exist well because you, you knew you, could, you couldn't ring it would be t- you couldn't phone it would be too late or impossible. Well, or? no, I mean, we, there wasn't the internet. No yeah. one had a mobile phone, no. you know. Um, so, yeah, you had to physically go and buy your tickets. And so to make sure you were there, and you knew that the whole of Southampton and the surrounding <laughs> area was going to want a ticket because they hadn't been here before. And, yeah. you, know, we, yeah. you know, so thankfully I had good mates who uh, who were allowed to, to stay out overnight and queued up and they got me a ticket. So that was fantastic. So I'd secured my place to go. But I was also, I had a Saturday job um, in Debenhams. And uh, at that point, there were like um, little franchise. I think we call them franchises now or yep, brands yep. or whatever. But then it was called a shopping shop. And the shopping shop I worked for in Debenhams sold letterboxes and door furniture and stuff like that. And it was called Knobs and Knockers. <laughs> and, and I, <laughs> so I, somebody must have been boy. so proud of that title. They must have been, no. the day they were like, yes. I guess they were. <laughs> I, I reckon I, that's the only reason they came up with, a, with the business, yeah. just for the title. Start with a title. <laughs> It's quite 70s, isn't it? A shop called Knobs and Knockers. It's like pretty full on. Anyway, I, I, yeah, so I was a young mod working behind the counter in the Knobs and Knockers. It sounds a bit like mods and rockers, which is really odd as well. But I was probably more of a, a knob than a, than a rocker. <laughs> a rocker. There I was. So I had my, yeah, I had my old kind of mod jacket, probably two-tone jacket, shirt, tie, jam badge. And I was in there on that Saturday, having to work that, that, that Saturday, um, when they were playing that night. And, um, Suddenly, there was this buzz went around the shop, right around Devon. It was like, yeah, it's, it's Paul Weller, the jam, the jam, the jam ring. And, I, and I, it was so exciting. They were, they came in. I don't know. They just came, wandered in with their, with a minder. 
So all three of them just just obviously before they started sound checking or something. So everyone was all the assistants, everyone was whispering, all the young people who were into and there's quite a few kind of young mods and things who were working there. So everyone was like walking around like staring, going, Yeah, it is them, it is them. And so yeah, it, it was just there was nothing more to it really, other than I remember just seeing <laughs> Rick and Bruce standing under the escalator with the minder keeping out of the way, and then Paul goes off and buys a I think he was buying a birthday card or something. And so I I just followed him around and took my knobs and knockers notepad off and pen <laughs> and got got his autograph. And I actually got you know got the uh, Rick and Bruce's autographs as well. Have you still got them? Yeah, I have, and I I've, I wanted to find them to show you, but they're 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 in a box tucked away somewhere yeah. safely. So I met him. Uh, I say I met him. I so I got I got his autograph. Said hello, and then fantastic gig the next night. Uh, that night it was oh it was just brilliant. I mean very hot, wearing a parker and a suit and a tie down at the front. <laughs> absolutely ridiculous clothes to wear to a gig. Um, brilliant. I mean because Setting Suns was was such a great album. I, I still love that album. Then mm. they you know played it playing it live was was brilliant. Some great songs. And it was then that they were still letting fans come backstage afterwards, which I, I still think is an incredible thing to do too. Yeah, I've read, I mean, these stories I've read on that, and I think we're going to have some of them coming up on the podcast as well, but that's just nuts. I mean, it's and the amount of fans who kind of came into sound checks. Is, I mean, it's lovely, but crazy. But really, yeah, I mean, the sound check thing I, I didn't know about, but obviously I had my responsibilities with knobs and knockers. So I, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have made the sound check, obviously. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the fact that they did, yeah, they opened the doors up at the end and all these, uh, you know, the whole kind of jam army, as they were called, the Parker Glad Glad fools, <laughs> with, you know, their target patches on the back of their Parkers and Union Jam. I mean, I was one of them, but, you know, it, was, it is quite comical. The whole thing about Mod being an individualist and all in kind of line of kids all looking exactly the same. And the fact that it was all meant to be kind of, you know, sharp and, and tailored and, and all this sort of, you know, when you look back at the, the 60s and the little kind of films and stuff where these guys are getting their handmade suits. And by the time the Mod revival came, there was some right old cheap rubbish being sold kind of wholesale. And I remember buying a, a Crombie a bit later on. And I went up to Carnaby Street to buy a, a Crombie overcoat. And it was basically made of felt, I think. It was a really thin felt with this kind of cheap kind of like nylon-y red lining. And, you know, it was the best I could do. And uh, best I didn't have any money then anyway. So, you know, you, you still felt good in it. But when you think what a real crombie is and how it would be made, it, it was quite funny what we were wearing those days. Really. <laughs> so what yeah, happens so, when, they, when they open the back door, they, they just yeah. let the fans in after the gig, right? Yeah, they did. You, you, you queue up and then when they were ready, they'd open the doors and they, they, they would just sat behind a little table or something just in the wherever near the stage door and then you'd just file past and you'd say hello and, and they'd sign an autograph and, and, and we'd have a chat brief chat and i remember with me and my mates we stood there as long as we possibly could kept thinking of more questions to ask and then at one point i noticed that i'd chosen the shirt particular shirt i think i really liked and i knew he wore was a kind of quarter inch blue and white striped ben sherman shirt I've seen pictures of it since, and and then Terry Hall from the specials used to wear one as well, and I was I was wearing it, and then I, he was wearing it, so I just went, oh no no, I know where I said this is the best thing. No, he said I like your shirt, and I said, oh thanks. I said, yes, you're wearing the same one. And he kind of went, oh, yeah, so I am. And that impressed me so much that he didn't even know what shirt he was wearing. He was just able to say, take shirts or supposedly. <laughs> shirt. That shirt, I'd planned to wear that for about six weeks beforehand. And um, 
I love it. (laughs) Then we got got told off by Rick Buckler for hanging around and ligging for too long. So we had to move on. Brilliant. I love that so much. Um, Now, obviously, your life then um, as a fan um, from a a kind of young age, you move into comedy. There's Manchester Uni. I was going to say you meet your other half, um, but your other half in terms (laughs) of comedy. Simon. Yeah, yeah. yeah, My comedy partner, Simon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We met there at Manchester. Um, and you become Trevor and Simon um, in, yeah. in, in the same way. Every time I say your name, I want to say Anne Simon afterwards, which I'm sure you must know a lot. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, I, I have to answer to both because people people don't call me Simon. Quite often I'm out with Kath, my wife, and people go, hey, Trevor and Simon, you know, which is a bit... <laughs> I think CT just laughs that off now. But, you know, all I am just even on my own, it's Trev and Simon's. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's easy to forget how big kids TV was at that time, you know, and you started, I think it was going live and then live and kicking, if I remember rightly, in terms of That's the order right. of the yeah, shows, yeah. yeah. And dominated Saturday morning TV for like a whole decade. This was kind of so huge. You were, so, you know, you forget how big these shows are. And you're kind of, the comedy and your catchphrase and your characters kind of are embedded in our consciousness as, as a kind of nation. That must have been such an exciting time for you, kind of being part of that. I guess Friday nights were horrendous because you have to get up early on a Saturday to do that gig. But apart from that, your life must have been so cool. That must have been such an exciting period. It was really exciting because I like it. I mean, you know, so I say growing up in the 70s, there was the Saturday morning TV for me then was like Noel Edmonds multicolored swap shop, which was a great kind of, and as well as there was, then there was Tiswas as well and, and stuff like that. Um, but swap shop I used to watch and bizarrely strange that you would hope that Keith Chegwin would be down the road from you because he used to rock up in a local park and you could take down toys and stuff and swap them. And that was the whole kind of notion of this Saturday morning show. Noel Edmonds would be in the studio in London and Keith would be out around the regions meeting uh, you know anyone who wanted to swap things? Yeah, I'd be. I was a big fan of Saturday morning TV, and I did try to win Susie Quattro's guitar when she came on and offered the guitar as a prize. I never won it. We just got the chance to a have fun and muck about and write silly stuff and just do what we enjoy doing, but in an environment where you were just meeting uh, pop stars and people off the telly, and we were just we were like fans a lot of the time. So when people came on like Paul McCartney it was like this was in the first few weeks of being on the show and and literally we we'd had no preparation for this we'd been doing the pubs and clubs around London doing the alternative comedy scene but we had no preparation for TV so and literally I'd been uh, working as a builder's mate up until then or just you know signing on and and then suddenly we were in this world of TV Paul and Linda McCartney coming into the studio with their kids and in us saying, oh, oh, hello, um, we're, we're Trevor and Simon, and him saying, oh, I know who you are. <laughs> and he was probably lying, but it was a really nice thing to say. Yeah. And we kind of were just so impressed with him. And I remember he had a little badge on, which was, you know, like the kind of Russian kind of hammer and sickle thing. Uh, or uh, he had a kind of a guitar and sickle. So it looked, it was kind of quite, I just remember that being quite cool. But yeah, it was very exciting. So it was, it was fun to do the comedy. All these things like World of Strange and the swing your pants and all that kind of really stuck. I mean, it's kind of power of those catchphrases and stuff was just incredible as well. Who knew? I mean, we had no plan. We didn't know what we were going to do. Basically, having got the job, we had a contract for four weeks because I don't think anyone had any faith we'd stick around for much longer. (laughs) We We only had about half an hour's material that we used to do in the pubs. 
And like the boss said who employed us, Chris Bellinger, the editor, he said there's only one joke in that, that that's suitable for our audience anyway. <laughs> we were doing a lot of political stuff. We were using, like, we were in pubs doing alternative comedy. You know, at that point, our comedy heroes were the young ones, Alexi Sale, um, people like that. Um, and so we, we were, yeah, it really wasn't suitable material for Saturday morning TV. So we had to start making it up. And that show demanded... 20 about 20 minutes a week from us and it was 30 weeks a year and we did it for 10 years so you know no wonder we had to come up with repeated catchphrases because we we had to find something in a sense that we could run with so we did we decided to invent characters and created characters where we could do like little sitcoms or or running gags and and go back to them and repeat them so hence for some reason, we came up with the barbers, Ken and Eddie Kennedy, the barbers. They were kind of like old old school barbers in ridiculous haircuts themselves that looked suspiciously like we. And their their catchphrase was, we don't do perms. The funniest thing was when Roger Daltrey came into the shop, though, because he pretty much had a perm. <laughs> <laughs> and we had to give... We had to give him a perm in reverse. But, um, see, that was quite a thing as well. It's bizarre. You know, suddenly we decided to come up with a couple of characters that we thought kids might be entertained by, which were old fashioned barbers. And then Roger Daltrey was in the barber shop. I mean, it's slightly odd, very odd, really. And then, yeah, we came up with other very kid friendly concepts like dry cleaners. We did a couple of dry cleaners that we don't do duvets. So that was a, you know, that was yeah, kind yeah. of running on from that. And the swing your pants thing, that that came early on, I suppose, where they were the first characters we came up with. And that was when I think we got stuck in Brighton. Uh, We went down to do a gig there and there was a big storm and um, we had to stay with a friend overnight and we were stuck there because the roads were closed. And it gave us a chance to think about what we were going to do because we'd been on the show a few weeks and it exhausted all the material we could think of. Yeah, we were a bit inspired by our friend's house and kitchen, which was quite bohemian. And we kind of just started thinking about a couple of characters that might kind of inhabit this kind of environment. And so it was a mixture of old school kids TV presenters meet hippies, meets folk singers, meets psychedelic crazies, really. I mean, they were odd characters, I'd say the least. And people interpreted them in different ways. The the catchphrase Swing Your Pants came about because I I had a kind of very rudimentary kind of knowledge of the guitar. So I, I basically... That really was three chords. And I tried to sing every possible song we sang with the same three chords or maybe one if I could get away with it. And so because I was doing that and singing along, singing little kids songs or folk songs or whatever it was we came up with, Simon felt a little bit kind of helpless not having it. So he kind of grabbed hold of his chords and started swinging his legs from side to side and coined this phrase, swing your pants, which then kind of stuck. We found out later that in Scotland, it became a, a form of, of, of an insult. It was a bit like saying, fuck off, always swing your pants. Oh, really? Apparently so, yeah. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, which I find a like. Yeah. yeah. Um, like everything you're saying on a Saturday morning is massively offensive <laughs> yeah. to the people so of Scotland. It was, a kind of, it was a mixture of an insult. It was a kind of call. It was a cry to arms. It was all sorts. Swing your pants. It just meant everything. Then the whole kind of, you know, um, Manchester kind of rave kind of, baggy scene came in and uh, like the happy mondays turned up and they were they were doing gigs with donovan suddenly we've been doing donovan songs and and it all kind of mixed together somehow and we by the sounds of it from what i found out later is there was a, quite a lot of people who were either just coming in from the night before and would be turning on and watching us do this you know slightly psychedelic weird stuff 
and if they were a bit worse for wear anyway, I'm sure it took on a whole different yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, wasn't, there, um, wasn't there a great Paul Simon story as well whilst we whilst we're on the Saturday morning TV <laughs> subject? Well, I don't know how great it was really. It was, it's more just it's a slightly I feel sorry for the guy really. I mean, yeah, that's another thing. Paul Simon, I mean, I'm a massive star comes yeah. in on Saturday morning. We couldn't do a sketch with him, but we they said because it was his birthday, I think the team decided to have a massive birthday cake uh, made for him. They asked us to wheel it on with some kids around us as well and that kind of thing. So it was going to be like a big deal. Happy birthday, Paul Simon. He was a little bit subdued when he came in. He didn't look too happy. And and one of his people or manager or whatever just said, oh, he's been up all night with diarrhea, (laughs) which is is just what you want. international star you probably want your manager to go around telling everyone you've been up all night <laughs> but anyway that's what we found out that didn't stop us no come on send in the cake so he was there looking very like sort of a bit wobbly and we came in with this massive birthday cake and kids came in and we're whacking him on the head with balloons and that that's about the end of the story really I, I, I that's so of, funny though <laughs> a bit later on we did have a very late night um I, I can't remember quite well i think it snowed and and uh the boss decided we should all stay in a hotel together overnight which was a terrible thing <laughs> instead of coming from our homes where we'd all get stuck in the snow he thought it was safer that we'd all be in a hotel the night before so that at least we'd be in one place but it just meant everyone stayed up really late <laughs> <laughs> and had a bit of a party. And so the next day, um, I remember feeling a bit like Paul Simon. Uh, I, and then I had to wear, I was wearing, I, was, I don't know what, I've forgotten what the, the sketch was, but I was wearing a synthetic kind of suit made out of animal fur. I had a bowler hat on and I was, I was sat on a big kind of fairground monkey. And I felt like I was about to throw up throughout the whole sketch and the <laughs> kids all sat around me. I was just thinking this, this is possibly the worst, the worst thing I can imagine now in front of however many three million people or whatever it was. Yeah. Live Thank TV. Well, <laughs> Over the years, I'm pretty sure I've seen you on um, in the crowd at Jules Holland. It might have been Hootenanny, one of the others. Would that be right? Have I seen you on there? And, and was it a yes, Weller episode? Yeah, absolutely. That right. yeah, um, because I, you know I like to feel uh, uh, me and Paul our paths have crossed on a few occasions, and that that was one of them. Yeah, I, I was very exciting. Again, I suppose it was because of our. BBC privilege, we were able to get go along and join in the crowd of the Hootenanny. And Paul Weller was on that that night. And and I was able to stay for the after show party as well, which he also stayed for. I just was too nervous to go and speak to him or introduce myself Aww. or do anything, which is ridiculous, really. But that, that's been the pattern of how of how I've been with a lot of celebrities, really, and particularly with, with Paul Weller, because I'm such a fan and because I was so I kind of grew up with all those songs and all those lyrics. You just think, well, there's so much to say, but it's probably a lot of stuff he's heard before and how, how am I going to come at it differently I and mean, it's not going to mean much to him if I just say I love all your stuff you know so I decided not to say anything really because I thought I don't want to spoil this I'd rather just you know keep it he's yeah. a hero and let's leave it at that so I didn't approach him at that point and that happened also me and Simon got to um were invited to do a gig I think it was around 1990 so I think this was probably before the whole solo kind of launch and sort of post style council possibly just before Paul Weller released all his solo stuff we, we did a gig at the dominion theater in support of the ambulance workers who'd gone on strike it was it was quite a big deal at the time and um there was a kind of a lot of support for the ambulance workers me and simon did a swing your pants thing <laughs> and paul weller was on so i kind of have been on the same bill as him and in fact when we were there at the sound check i was just because i was waiting at the side of the stage and and someone tapped me on my shoulder and i turned around and it was paul weller and he said where's the sound check which I still to this day think is 
quite strange because we were on the side of the stage of the sound check. So I kind of just went <laughs> there and, po- and pointed. I think, you know, I didn't say any more. And again, I, I just, I'm, I am an idiot. I should have just started a conversation. And he may have been very nice and it may have been a way of trying to open up conversation probably, but I'm so yeah. socially awkward and such an idiot. And also I thought like, because of the time at the Hootenanny, I thought, well, look, I'm, I'm just like a comedy, a comedy fool, really. And I'm doing sort of cheesy Saturday morning TV that probably someone like Paul Weller wouldn't enjoy. It never came on. So I presumed Saturday morning TV probably wasn't his thing. And, um, so I sort of then felt, actually, I don't want to put myself in a situation where this could all go horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah. I've got, I've got the memory of the shirt comment. That's enough for me. Yeah. He, li- he likes my shirt back in 1979. Exactly. That was a- yeah. I, I didn't want to spoil that really. So, uh. Uh, and did he play after you on the, on the gig or the benefit gig? Yeah. 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 So you, I, you supported Paul Weller? I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's the story. Exactly. You've got to spin it. Um, and which, which Hootenanny was it? Was it, I, was it the, the Amy Winehouse one or was it a later one? No, I don't think it. Uh, oh, God. I know you've got me now. I, I, I don't, I've got a very vague memory. Generally. You were pissed, weren't you? You were pissed. <laughs> like every, everybody else on Hootenanny. I is, remember Jules Holland going around saying who, who we should have as Prime Minister. And I claimed it should be him. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> we do a lot better job than anyone else. Oh, well, yeah. 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 Oh, no, I love Jules. And, and Hootenanny, for those that don't know, is, um, is a, sh- a show in the UK that is, is New Year's Eve, um, on the BBC, but recorded in like September or something ridiculous, right? So, so you're all kind Way of before Christmas. Yeah. yeah. So you're all pretending that you're kind of counting in the new year as if this is a, is a kind of live show, but actually it's like way before. Yeah. 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 And it's yeah. just the audience just, it's a chance where everyone just sits around and listens to some great music in the end and gets pissed. Really. Yeah, so, lovely. It's a beautiful thing. You also have something else in common with Paul, I understand. Um, so the connections continue throughout your entire life. Aren't you the dad of twins as well as Paul? I, I yeah, I am. Yeah. In, in 1994, uh, six, six. I had twins. Yeah, so they're they're quite grown up now. I had two girls, and um, so yeah. In fact, again, that was another little blog piece I wrote because when when I saw that he was having twins as well, I thought, well, yeah, this is maybe you know because I'd learned a lot from Paul over the years. You know, I've like learned about Motown and soul music and and all kinds of you know um, sort of like mod history and and clothing and lots of kind of you know hints and stuff so I did think well if we ever met I might be able to give him some hints on twins uh, I know what it's like and he I you know no disrespect he wasn't a young man when he was having twins and I was thinking wow you know fair play luck, yeah because <laughs> it's it's not easy um this is fantastic so yeah I've got four kids actually so I had two other children after that as well so oh lovely oh beautiful so you, you mentioned about I mean, this has come up quite a lot on the podcast as well, actually, the, the kind of other artists and bands and, and things that Paul has recommended over the years. So you've also kind of gone on this voyage of discovery, like many of us, where you've maybe read an article, you've seen an interview, and suddenly it kind of sets you off on another journey where you kind of go, I need to check that out. He's, he's said about this. Let me find out more. Yeah, For my age group, and I know there's a lot a lot of you know people of my sort of generation that, that, that punk rock did that completely in a sense because yeah with through the jam I, that introduced me to northern soul and tamala motown and the kinks and and some great great music and then with the clash you know they they sort of introduced me i guess to dub reggae and, and reggae artists that i didn't sort of know previously and going to punk gigs where like you know um reggae music was played you know between the bands and stuff like that it was it was a great experience really and the whole scene the whole culture was was kind of quite diverse and it kind of became less so in a way some a bit, a bit later it's sort of all 
changed again now, but it was a great time for discovery, for discovering like music and cultures and just, it was very, it was really good. It was really good. And so, yeah, yeah, that whole kind of journey with, with the jam did, did lead you down different paths. I, I, I do like the Northern Soul and particularly lockdown. I found myself kind of still trying to get the Northern Soul moves nailed in my kitchen. Um, <laughs> I can't. I'll keep trying. I get very out of breath these days. And did you stick along the journey for the Style Council? And I know you're a big solo fan, but were you kind of along for the whole thing? Yeah, no, absolutely. For me, it wasn't a big surprise. I know it upset a lot of jam fans, but I could sort of see it coming in a way. I, I thought The Gift was a great album. And I know there was a bit, I, well, I, I don't know. I remember at the time, some people were less enthusiastic about it as jam fans. Whereas I, I loved it. And I, I loved the... I, I loved all that gradual soul stuff that was coming into it. Uh, I liked I liked the brass section in terms of just the, the hearing, the, you know, the horns and everything. I thought it was always a great. Even right back, going back to Heatwave, I'd, I'd loved all the, the horns on that. So I'd always enjoyed that part of it, that side of that journey. And the gift, I thought there was a hint there of what was coming. You know, there was a soft, there was a softer side to things. He was definitely like with with. Um, Precious, there was an, you know, he was exploring dance music and and slightly kind of you know funkier bass lines and things and uh yeah i could i could see it coming so it wasn't it was a shock and it was disappointing when the jam split but it was a chance to see them again i thought i saw them on the trans global express tour and then saw them on the, the farewell tour um in manchester so it was a great chance to actually see them again um yeah so when they split i thought well okay something else will come along and and when the style council happened it kind of made sense and i thought you know in terms of the the mod journey it made sense that there was a um, it wasn't just about parkers and targets and scooters and it got a bit more kind of into that whole kind of European thing and, and sort of French and Italian kind of culture. And it was quite humorous as well, but it was quite interesting, particularly in these grim Brexit days. I think it was really fun there to be open to all that European influence and how things had kind of been shared and borrowed and things by different by different countries and cultures. So, yeah, I, and I liked the Style Council. I, I liked, I thought uh, the first album was brilliant. I have to confess that I think probably as my life started getting more complicated and, and I was getting selfishly following my own kind of comedy career, I lost touch with the latter end of the Style Council a bit. I mean, it's, it's maybe an obvious one to go for, but Walls Come Tumbling Down, it's mm. such a great song. And I thought that was a great combination of the of the kind of political and uh, energy of the jam, but with the kind of musical kind of soulful force of his new kind of place, really, with the style council. And DC Lee's vocals as stunning. I thought she was brilliant. I think Paul is seems to have a great, I don't know, he just duets well. And I think uh, but that combination with uh, at that point with him and DC Lee, I, this was great. And I was a fan. I saw them only once, I think, when I was a student in Manchester. And I think it was a CND rally. We all jumped in a coach and went down to London for, for a rally. And I think Style Council were playing in uh, Brixton in Brockwell Park, somewhere like that. So I remember seeing them then. But that was all, yeah. And I, and I never saw it. never went to Live Aid, so I didn't see that. But. And then the solo years. So um, obviously the Polydor relationship comes to an end. The Style Council is no more. The comeback, which is kind of when I discovered Paul, I think I've said this before on the podcast, for me, it was kind of like, there's this new guy called Paul Weller. There's this great... <laughs> This great song called Aha, oh, yeah, and, and, and <laughs> telling all my mates, and they're like, oh, great. And then I mentioned it to a couple of older people, and they're like, yeah, yeah, mate, is <laughs> the jam greatest hits. Get yourself into that. Um, yeah. Was it the same for you in terms of the comeback and you and you kind of going, actually, Paul Weller's back in my life again, and this this new music, this solo music is so good. Yeah, I mean, it was fantastic. I, and I was really excited by it. I think that that album is is, is really cool, and there's some, some great tracks on it. So it was exciting. And, and to me, it was like a kind of, 
It then was the, like the third mod revival had begun, really. And I was like having full midlife crisis by then. So, you know, it was great. <laughs> it was perfect timing. So, <laughs> so along, along with the music, which is great. Yeah. It was great to hear those, to, to hear those songs. But yes. And then I got, <laughs> ended up getting myself a Vespa and, and I had a bit more money then. So I went off into Covent Garden, kitted myself out into some kind of, you know, Britpop slash mod kind of clothing. And I felt I was back. It was like, yeah. So I was riding into Soho on my scooter and feeling like yeah finally I'm, I'm living the mod dream age 40 however it was but, um, so no it was good it was really good and then I did get I went a lot then to different Weller gigs I was thinking about it me and my, my wife went along on the scooter which was exciting we went um, to, so I made a little list because I could I went so we went to see the uh, Victoria Park outdoor one and Crystal Palace as well which was great. Where well, I, I read recently that it was rumoured that, that Liam Gallagher was going to come on and join in, which he didn't. But we were lucky enough to have access backstage and we went for a drink in the bar and Liam Gallagher was there. So I wondered if maybe that's where the rumour started, right, that someone right. saw him turn up and thought, oh, he must be going on to sing. But he didn't. But that was a great gig. It was really good in Crystal Palace, um, you know, big arena kind of outdoor place. And what period would that have been? So when roughly album-wise around when? God, well, that was that was, not, well, that was later. I think that may have been like 97. Yeah, Stanley Rhodes being maybe Heavy Souls. Yeah, yeah, that's around yeah. that time. Yeah, oh, how exciting! Really great. I mean, when he was, I mean, God, he was so full on. Uh, you know, it, the energy that he put into those into those songs, and it just, I think it was, you know, things like Gildy Splinters and, and Woodcutter's Son and uh, Porcelain Gods. That's a that's a great song, by the way. But um, yeah, um, just yeah, the power and stuff he would put into it, and it, it just kind of on it, really. It was like he was just loving every second of, he was the boss then. He was. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of like the record sales were kind of off the chart at that point and he's never been more successful and an incredible period. And, and we've had, we've got so much to come on that in terms of conversations. I'm really excited about this podcast. And then up to date, are you kind of, um, are you into the new stuff? Are you still kind of with it? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I guess, you know, I kind of like to listen to lots of stuff, but I think uh, on Sunset, I think it's really good. You know, what amazes me is that it's just that ability to, mix up styles and just to, to catch you out you know there's songs on there that still sound like you could you can hear kind of bits of bowie um you know ray davis kind of stuff and then suddenly you'll get this really funky soul kind of jazz riff going and and then something you know like a theremin will come out of the blue somewhere and you'll have this kind of you know spooky sci-fi sound so there's it's kind of great in a way that he's really interesting artist that he can be quite experimental and 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 have a lot of variety within one album yeah. and yet it still have s- something that kind of holds it together glues it together that, that is essentially Paul Weller I guess and, and the way he's changed his voice and uses sort of different vocal inflections now is kind of interesting as well yeah I've read more about that yeah like you say in recent years where he's kind of seeing that more as an instrument as much as anything else it's kind of yeah, like you can hear that you can yeah. hear that and obviously he, he, I don't I'm not going to speak for him, but it seems like he comes at sometimes with a kind of more folk approach or a sort of soulful approach. And, and yeah, that would make sense then if he's thinking of like an instrument, because you then bring that to whatever song is the most, or, you know, whatever's most appropriate for that yeah. music. Then. But yeah. I mean, it's so prolific. I mean, when you, I can't, I mean, I can't keep up with it. The year, you know, when you get to my age, you know, the years <laughs> go by very quickly and you just think, actually, 22 Dreams and uh, Wake Up the Nation seems like modern stuff to me, you know, which again, I thought were, were really good. 22 Dreams, I really, really enjoyed that. And uh, that was kind of a, like another new beginning. There's always like new beginnings. Yeah. I feel. yeah, these kind of reset moments is really interesting. And I was talking with Andy Lewis about the 22 
Dreams and and indeed about, um, with Tim who kind of is the guy who made the artwork and 22 Dreams is a really kind of key period for me I, I love that album I absolutely adore it but then when you look it's like oh, well, like 13 years ago you're like where, where did that time go well, ex- well exactly that's what I mean yeah and so I try not to think about that but it was a good album and I think it sort of felt to me like it captured some of that, that I'm not always looking for it to go back and capture the days of the jam but I do think that album had a kind of the gift quality to it. There was like elements of brass on it and there was a kind of up, kind of upbeat, very high energy kind of, you know, um, joyful kind of, uh, feel to it, which I thought the gift had. And it, and it kind of had a similar feel to, you know, for me. And I don't know whether it was around the same time. If you're going to talk to Andy Lewis, you'll know, but the, that song they did together, I, I, yes. I kind of be lonely. That is a great Northern Soul song. It's a great song. The story about that and how that came about is lovely because that involves a, a midnight on a 1am conversation with Weller giving Andy Lewis a ring, telling him he loves the demo. It's brilliant. You, you'll you'll really? really enjoy that, I'm sure. Yeah, you're oh, really how exciting. That. Well, it, the, so the result fun. is superb, I think. It's yeah. a really good dance tune. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fantastic track. Hey, look, a couple of questions before you you go this has been such a lovely conversation you're still a double act with uh, with simon tell me a bit about um strangeness in space this kind of cult sci-fi comedy that you've kind of created which is crowdfunded so uh, the kind of yeah. audience pays for it essentially and kind of helps you make it but you mentioned alexi sale earlier on i think he's he's been part of one of the one of the episodes or part of the story it's a few years ago now but it's still available and it's then it's there that's the beauty of the podcast uh, it was great it was a great idea um you see when we, when we were back at university me and simon we were also um there with uh, Sophie Aldred, who was one of the uh, Doctor Who's assistants yes, for a while. Yeah, yeah. And um, so our friend and manager, Claire, um, said, look, why don't we all get together and try and do something with that connection? So so me and Simon and Sophie and Claire, we had a bit of a meetup and we thought, yes, let's do a kind of sci-fi comedy then that will maybe kind of be something that would be fun for the Trevor and Simon fans and Doctor Who fans or who knows. Let's see what it, where it went. Yeah, we crowdfunded it and uh, it was an audio because Claire had previously worked on another kind of sci-fi audio. So we decided to go down that path. Simon and I started writing the scripts and, and we were kind of, it was a bit of it. It was all the sci-fi films we, we loved when in there as influences, as well as dark comedy, um, probably like Red Dwarf and, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the other thing that may anyway it was yeah lots of different influences were in there so and it worked really nicely and then we were able to bring in guests so we, we had Doom McKeegan, um, who was our narrator. And it's actually, she, it, sounds, it sounds like kind of Manchester University Drama Department <laughs> Club, which was there as well at the time. So she right, was another okay. mate who, who then went on, you know, to become such a great comedian. And so she was our narrator. We had an actual uh, Dalek in, in, in the shape of Barnaby Edwards, who's, um, who is a, an actual Doctor Who Dalek. Well, he's not a Dalek. He's a real person, but he plays Daleks. He was our computer robot for the, uh, for the series. And then we, yeah, we did have guest stars. So, uh, yeah, Alexi Sale joined us, which, which was brilliant. And he was very funny and he started improvising around our scripts, which was really good. And oh, probably a good idea. <laughs> 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 um, and an actual doctor. So obviously um, you mentioned Sophie. So she was Doctor Who's assistant when it was Sylvester McCoy, I think, probably. Right. So he plays uh, Sophie's dad in the uh, in the drama. So it all gets very, uh, very tragic and sad towards the end. But it's worth a listen. It's this daft comedy and it's oh, nice. silly. Yeah. And there's people like uh, Patterson Joseph uh, in it as well. It's good. Well, I shall share the, share the details because I think it's really fun to kind of dig out. Strangersinspace.com. It's all on the website now. <laughs> Fabulous. Okay, right. You are allowed one Weller song for the rest of your life. 
I'm going to delete That's the rest. Impossible. I'm going to delete the rest of the, I don't know why. Why am I going to delete the rest of the back castle? It's a horrible thing to do for people. <laughs> anyway, terrible. you can, <laughs> terrible idea. Why would you do that? Um, you can only carry one song forward. Which, which one would it be? And it's obviously, this is a moment in time and this is today. This is this minute right now. But as soon as you leave this conversation, what would be the one track that you ask Alexa to play? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a real, it's a real difficult one because I, th- I, I mean, I think in terms of, you know, the Paul Weller songs, then Changing Man and Peacock Suit are probably up there. Well, definitely up there. Yeah. Because again, we played them in, in our band, Charlie Don't Surf. I'll just give them a little plug. Um, because, uh, they, they mean a lot to me as well, but they're, they're great songs. Style Council will probably always come tumbling down, ever changing moods. There's lots of good songs. Probably, I probably would go back to a jam one because just because of the, excitement and and the age and just the memory of discovering that that music then and i think it would probably would be either tube station or eaten rifles eaten rifles we haven't talked about but that's such a great song and it's still relevant now and it's still got all the kind of energy and fury of just it's just a great song um but tube station i think i'm going to go for because it was so powerful at the time and it was like nothing else and it was like part of that you could almost see the way the jam were going to go they'd taken punk and then they've gone with it and they were going somewhere else now. And they were telling stories, playing them in a way that was a bit more controlled and a bit more subtle in a way than, than some of the other punk stuff that was going on. I loved playing it with the band. And yeah, there's just a lot of good memories attached to it. It'd be down to Tube Station at night. You mentioned Eat Some Rifles. That was such an important single, such an important song for the, for the jam in terms of just getting to a massive audience at that point. Yeah. And, and the fact that it was so political though, as well. I and mean, I think that's what was so brave about that, that music that he, you know, he was reaching a huge audience. Um, and it's a bit like going underground as well. You know, so many lines in those songs really do reach out and and they did set an agenda and they 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 kind of I don't know whether it was them that convinced me but it put me on a kind of a, a political track that I've never kind of left really and it still makes me you know, like I say it makes me a bit angry in a sense that you could play Eaton Rifles and there's, mm. there's a relevance to it and going underground um in fact many of those songs and I wouldn't expect him to play them now but you know they could still be played with that energy and anger and they would be relevant 40 years later and they still ring true and nothing's changed is the front yeah which is sad really yeah. um but uh, you know you never know the thing <laughs> that changed my <laughs> but um i did see actually another time i went to see paul well it was a bit of a lucky break we were we were being interviewed on xfm and they were having a, a, a music festival and uh, he was playing it as part of that i think was playing at coco in camden in london and we got we went along to, to see him there and he played eating rifles so it was around the time of floorboards up and um come on let's go and that uh, another good kind of time yeah. they're all good times aren't they we always have good times with Paul Weller but that was a good one so yeah he played it uh eating rifles then uh, and it was very exciting to hear that I saw Kelly Jones come on and play that with Weller um again at the Royal Albert Hall I think it was and I'm not sure Kelly knew the words <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I'm not sure they're the words I remember anyway, put it that way. <laughs> um, <Okay. laughs> no, we came out of the show afterwards and then we had to go straight on to XFM and talk about the, the gig and give it a review. We weren't, but they were absolutely convinced that me and Simon were drunk because we were just so excited. And I was saying, oh yeah, you've made an old man happy. I listened to Eating Rifles again. And I was like, I was acting, I was acting up, I guess. Um, they just thought we were pissed. <laughs> but we'd been so kind of we were so high on the gig and 
came out so excited. That's how it came over. Because that's the thing. You don't know what they, what he's going to pull out from that back catalogue because there's so many songs. And and even now, and hopefully we'll get to see him live in 2021, I do hope. You don't know what he's going to... You know, there's, there's just too much to choose from. So when those little surprises kind of come in, there was one last... Was it last year or the year before? Whenever the Forest gigs were, I can't remember. That might have been last, No, the year before last, wasn't it? Um, and, he, and he pulled out Strange Museum off that first debut, the, the Paul Weller solo debut album. Um, right. And I hadn't heard that. I don't think I'm not entirely sure I'd heard that live ever, to be honest with you. But when you heard it, you're like, yeah. oh, wow, what a surprise. So those those little kind of gems where you come out and particularly if they kind of impact on a yeah. on a moment like that from your youth or whatever is, is so exciting. I love that kind of stuff. But it must be difficult. For, I mean, because, you know, if I was him, I, you know, you'd think, oh, I'll, I'll just play with play the songs I can still remember. <laughs> I, mean, because, <laughs> I mean, it must be like if, if there's so many songs. I mean, yeah. for me, I mean, just with the set list in our band, I have to kind of go and do revision <laughs> just to remember the lyrics and chord progressions of certain songs and things. You just think, how on earth is that? Well, he must have a very good brain up there with a great storage capacity. That's probably why he likes playing the new stuff so much, because at least <laughs> well, maybe. it's in the current, it's in the memory, right at the front of mind, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But I've seen him do great, you know, acoustic versions of some of the old songs and with all the band lined up at the front, all with the yeah. acoustics. And, that, you know, that's great. It's, it's good to hear, like, you know, old songs played fresh now purpose of this podcast is also to 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 get that meeting with paul at black barn to have that conversation that has kind of eluded me on interview for so many years we could you know obviously i can talk to him about um, the type of shirt that we're wearing and fingers crossed we'll match on the day um of course but, but what should i cover off is there anything a, a kind of burning question from those two failed attempts to have a conversation with him since your shirt days is there something that you really wish you had of asked in hindsight <laughs> that i should cover I, I, off i don't know it's one of those i still feel the same i'd still go to pieces and say something stupid but i <laughs> You remember when Trevor and Simon supported you? That should be a question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those good old days. I think pe- people tend to seem to approach Paul Weller with, with some kind of caution or trepidy, you know, and, um, and you feel that um, people, you know, sort of talk about, you, you know, this slightly hallowed, uh, iconic figure, which of course he is and deserves. But I suspect, you know, also you hear in interviews and stuff that, you know, he's clearly got a good sense of humour and, and it's fun to be around. Mm. So I think just because I'm interested in comedy and stuff, I'd be interested to know who or what makes him laugh, really, you know, in terms of whether it's comedy, you know, whether it's comedians or whether it's just people or just social having a chat with, with his mates, you know, what, what, what makes him laugh? Or perhaps, and on a similar thing, you know, what's a kind of, and I don't like this phrase, it's a bit of a cliche, but what's his guilty pleasure on TV? You know, something quite mundane. For me, it's like bargain hunt. And, uh, <laughs> So, um, you know, I quite like the idea of seeing Paul Weller watching Bargain Hunt over his lunch, you know, things like that would be quite, I would be quick to know. Yeah, and I think I I might have mentioned it on one of the episodes because, um, I've got young kids. He's got young kids. So there's a bit of me that was kind of thinking he must be watching the Paw Patrol and things like that at times. Surely <laughs> yeah. that must be his life as well, right? It's like, yeah. <laughs> You'll be hearing the theme tunes as influences on music. You know, yeah. go back and trace them. You know. <laughs> hey, Dougie. Like <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, Trevor. This has been an absolute blast. I'm so pleased that we've got this in the diary, and I'm so pleased that we've had this chat. Well, this has been you. such fun. I'm, I'm, very flattered. I, I can't think it will be of any interest to people who <laughs> really know and love the jam. But there we go. I, I've loved it. Thank you very much. I have to say, enjoyed every second of that. Trevor Neal, what a great guest. There are links to all the things we talked about in our show notes. Next up on the podcast, another twist in your expectations as we're joined by the Chief Executive of the Royal Albert Hall. Craig Hassel is my guest on the next episode as we check in during lockdown and find out why the RAH is one of Paul's most favourite venues and why he's played there over 40 times in his career.
Subscribe now, leave a review. It all helps to find new listeners to the show. In fact, text one of your Weller-loving mates right now and tell them to give us a follow on Twitter. It's at WellerFanPod on Twitter or Paul Weller Fan Podcast on Instagram. See you next time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.